Amen? I know that's a somber introduction to this passage, but I think it's very appropriate for us to have in the forefronts of our minds and hearts the the focus of uh, where Peter is taking us this morning as we consider the cross in relation to the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Uh, it's, it's humbling to consider the lengths that Christ went through to suffer for us. Jesus didn't just go through minor affliction. He, he wasn't just having a bad day. He didn't just forget his car keys or stub his toe or any other kind of thing along the way. Jesus laid down his life for us. The steps to the cross which encompass the suffering that Peter is mentioning here in 1 Peter chapter 2 are the steps that we are called to follow. Let me remind you with what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, when we looked at this passage last week, that phrase, leaving you an example, we talked about what that meant, and it was actually, uh, in the first century world, they had tracing paper, and they would put it over something, and, and the children would learn how to trace their letters as they were learning how to write. That same word for that kind of paper is used to describe the kind of a example that Christ is to us, in that we would trace our lives over his life, knowing that the servant isn't greater than the master. And if he suffered, you're going to suffer as well. And we don't like to suffer. None of us like to suffer. Jesus didn't like to suffer. But that is the life of a disciple. Because we are in a fallen world. We are aliens and strangers. We are not home yet. And the weight of sin in this world will crush us. The challenge in all of this is to be patient. Knowing that God is at work. That he is using difficult times to develop Christ-likeness in us. Now Peter says that one of the fruits of patience is endurance. And I would guarantee if you had the opportunity, even now, um, to spend some time talking with people that have been through some very difficult times, uh, and you just listen to their story of God's faithfulness in their lives, what you would see as a result is that God gave them the ability to endure, to hold fast, to hang on. And what a testimony that is to us as it reminds us that God is able, and He is more than able to help us. I said before, you know, at a different time, that in life, you're either ready to enter a trial, leaving a trial, or a trial is going to be coming down the road. It's just going to happen. 
Life is going to hit us hard in different ways. And God uses all of those moments to help us endure so that we can hold fast and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. To endure means to stay or to stand still and not retreat, not back down, not run away, but to stay, to stay put and to rest in the refuge of our souls, Jesus Christ. Now, Peter says that our call to suffer and to stay is that of Jesus himself. Christ is our example. We follow in his steps. And in the remaining verses that we're going to look at this morning, Peter is now speaking to the example that Christ set for us. And it's supported in Scripture. And what I mean is that Peter now in verses 22 through 24 shows us the perspective of prophetic literature, prophetic scripture, how Christ has suffered for all of us. And so what he does is he takes us to Isaiah 53. On the backside of your bulletin, Isaiah 53 is, is printed in full for you. And I would encourage you to, to look at that passage uh, today, as I said last week, and just remind yourselves of uh, the amazing detail, I guess, that Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus ever took a step on this earth about how the Messiah would suffer at the hands of sinful men. And as Isaiah finished that prophecy in, in chapter 53 and verse 12, we read, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And so whether it's by direct quote, as we read in verse 22, or an inference in verses 23 and 24, Peter is referencing the suffering of Christ that is now brought to life. Isaiah wrote these things. Isaiah said, this is what is to come, and, and Jesus is the fulfillment. Isaiah wrote the words, Jesus is the living picture of those words. And so as we look at this text this morning in verses 21 through 25, what we see is provided one of the richest descriptions of the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement in all of Scripture. That's a mouthful. How many of you easily relate to the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and it rolls right off the tongue and you know exactly what that means? But here it is. Jesus died in our place to pay for our sin as it was placed on him so that we by faith would receive his righteousness. We're the scary looking people on the right there, right? Our sin is placed on Christ and his righteousness is placed on us. That is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It's also referred to by theologians as imputed righteousness, stamped on righteousness, 
given on your behalf righteousness, something that you don't deserve. And, and really, in both senses, Jesus doesn't deserve our sin. He took it. We do not deserve his righteousness. He gave it. None of it makes sense to the human mind. But this doctrine teaches us on what basis we come to God. And this doctrine also assures us that moving forward, our standing before God is guaranteed. You know what this tells me, this picture? My standing before a holy God is not based on my performance. It's not based on what I do. It's solely based on what has been done for me. And in no step of this process did Jesus say, do you want to do this? Do you want to receive this? No, he freely gave it. He lavishes upon us grace upon grace that we as the children of God would stand before him as righteous sons and daughters. And what does it mean to be righteous? To have right standing, to be declared innocent, to have no more guilt or shame, that there is no more sin. And you might say, but pastor, I still sin. Yes, but the righteousness of Christ clothes you, covers you. So that you can continue to go before a holy God and know that he is not going to throw you out of his presence and say, you do not belong here. No, he says, come to me. Because where I am, you may be also. And so we hold on to doctrines like this to assure our hearts. Because we know as we walk through a world full of sin that is beating against us. Those lies will come into our minds that we don't belong, that we are not worthy. Here's the thing. You look at this doctrine, you're not worthy. Your sin was placed on Christ. His righteousness was given to you. None of us are worthy. But when we have that righteousness, when we receive it, we are worthy. Children of God, you are worthy to be in God's presence. Enjoy Him. Don't run from Him. Don't hide from Him. Don't feel like that you can't ever go to Him. And so we want to look at this text and these verses and discover not only the theology of our salvation, but we also want to understand the steps that we are to follow. And so let me read to you verses 22 through 25, and let's see what Peter teaches us. So just backing up at the very end of verse 21, we are to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but, in, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, in verse 22, Peter directly quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 9. Peter states as a firsthand witness that Christ was perfect. 
he says that Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And he could say that with full assurance. He was there for three and a half years watching Jesus through all of those difficult moments when people were testing him, when the Pharisees were hounding him, when people were seeking to take his life, when people would blaspheme him to his face, when they would hurl insults, Jesus was perfect in every way. In fact, the scriptures assure us that not only did Jesus commit no sin, he could never commit sin. It was impossible as the Son of God. Christ and his nature was impeccable, perfect. Peter draws our attention to that fact and with great confidence write that Jesus never, ever fell short of the glory of God. He also says, nor did Jesus have deceitful speech. He was never cranky. He never complained. He never muttered insults under his breath. Right? Like many of you do this, right? Because I do it. And, and, you, and if you're like me, you know, you might not say something out loud, but you're like... <laughs> right? And, and you justify it and say, well, I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> Jesus never did that. He is the only example we need as one who had every right to complain. Like, here's the thing. He had every right to revile, to complain about what was being done to him. Why? Because it's our sin put on him. He is suffering for what we have done. And he took it so that he could give us what only he can give. And that is his righteousness. In verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Revile means to speak abuse. You know, it's, it's that angry word. It's that cutting tongue. It's that thought that, that you speak that just you want to cut down and destroy the person that you're speaking to. Jesus, as abuse was being hurled at him, never once turned back and spoke abuse. They called Jesus a deceiver, an illegitimate child, a blasphemer, a son of Beelzebub, who is Satan. They mocked him. They spit on him. They beat him with reeds. They put a crown of thorns on his head and crushed him and said, Here, king, prophesy. Here, king, do things that kings do. And at no point in his suffering... Did he retaliate? And Peter says in verse 21, just to remind you, follow his steps. Trace your life over his example. He never said, wait until after the resurrection. I know where you live. I'm coming for you. <laughs> he didn't say anything. 
He didn't fight back. In fact, the guy that wrote these words, Peter, in the garden, when he was supposed to be praying and fell asleep, as Jesus is talking to his father, came to Jesus' defense. And do you remember what he did in the garden? He lopped off the ear of one of the, the guards that were there to arrest him. And he never saw Jesus retaliate. In fact, he's probably thinking, why aren't you doing anything? And what did Jesus say? Well, if, he, if I need to, I can call on 12 legions of angels. You know how many legions 12 legions of angels is? Or how many angels that is? It's 72,000 angels. Like if he needed to, he could just say, hey, come down here, help me out. But he says to Peter, and in many ways he says to us as we go through this life and we are afflicted and, and crushed and, and we find ourselves in times where it's hard to submit, right? Because this is where we are in this section that he is the example of true submission. That when everything is crashing down on us, what Jesus is saying to us is put away the sword. Put it away. It's not ours to wield. It's not ours to defend ourselves. It's not ours to get in the way of what God is doing in our lives. But it is ours for, the, for us to trust in the plan of our Heavenly Father. Jesus never retaliated. Not only did, did he not do that, when he stood before Pontius Pilate, the judge, Pontius Pilate marveled that Jesus said nothing. At one point in the trial, Pilate said, do you answer nothing? Jesus wouldn't even open his mouth. And then from the cross, the first words that Jesus spoke were, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I don't know if I could say those words. I might say, Father, fry them, <laughs> flatten them. I might complain a little and say, I don't deserve this. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And here's the problem that we have in life, especially when the light of Scripture is shown into our hearts and we're, we're caught up with the reality of who we are apart from Christ and who we are to be in Christ. That it's a whole lot more fun to get even than it is to forgive. It's a whole lot more satisfying to just get even than to forgive. Now some of you are looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm so holy. And you're lying in church, so I will pray for you. <laughs> but it's human nature. It's human nature that has to be restrained and brought in. And, and we have to say no because it is so natural to want to fight back. Like the maid who was fired from a large estate, she worked for a family and the family fired her. And on the way out the door, she walked past the family's dog and she threw $5 at the dog. And the family said to her, what's that for? And she said, I never forget a friend 
That's for all the time she helped me clean your dishes. It's a lot easier to want to get even than to forgive. Instead, Jesus, as we read, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus could have followed through on any judgment he pronounced. He is the sovereign king. And at any moment in the kangaroo court of his accusations and and standing before judges and governors and all of that and and then being mocked and, and, and everything along the way, anything that he would have said could have happened. These were not empty threats that he could have made. But instead, he entrusted. And to entrust means to hand over. He handed over his life to his Father. To his Heavenly Father. Jesus entrusted that God, the Father, would deal with his persecutors in a just way. And we should too. Now here's the thing. Here's one of the things. When we entrust ourselves to the righteous judgment of a holy God, we know that God will make all things right. Vengeance is His. Thus saith the Lord. But we also need to remember that this righteous, just, and holy God is incredibly patient. He's incredibly patient. See, God isn't going to always just jump into our situations, snap his fingers, and poof, they're gone. God plays the long game in people's lives. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, here's the thing. If, if Jesus would have called down legions of angels from the cross to take care of his enemies, here's what we know. Church history teaches us that at least one of the Roman soldiers that was there to crucify him came to faith. Truly, this man is the Son of God. If justice was served in that instance, there would be no patience and there would be no opportunity to repent. So when we entrust ourselves to the righteous judge who does right, who will make all things right, we need to understand that sometimes what we want God to do for us in defending us is actually God saying, I know how you feel, but I have a greater plan because I need to add to my family. And we need to wait on Him. And we need to understand that this is His world. We are His creation. 
And so we should follow the example of Christ and follow in His steps. Verse 24, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. Jesus' suffering reached its climax on the cross. He bore our sins in His body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter taught that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Uh, Another uh, synonym of substitutionary atonement is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of penal substitution. Jesus paid the penalty. He paid the penalty bearing our sins, died our death so that we could be forgiven and receive his righteousness. And so what Peter is saying in this verse, and in sense, is that the cross is viewed as an altar on which the perfect sacrifice of Jesus was placed. That the cross became the altar. Because that is where the sacrifice was offered. And that the perfect life that died brings life to the imperfect ones who were dead. That's a mystery to me. And I'm sure it's a mystery to you. But if that doesn't say to us that God is a gracious God, I don't know what will. And that we rest by faith in these promises in Scripture that teach us that Christ is our substitute. You don't have to do anything else God does not want you to try to outperform what He has already done for you. That's God's way of making what was wrong right. See, every other world religion that attempts to to bring some kind of harmony between right and wrong is based on what we do. We try to be really good or outperform or get our lives straight or follow at the best of our ability all of these things. And here's the thing, in all of those world religions that teach works righteousness, that you have to do something, there is no guarantee that you can make it. There's none. And what Christ does for us is says, I know you can't do it. So I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to take all of your sin and put it on myself and take your place. And all you need to do is believe. And here is my promise to you. You will make it. You're going to make it home. You make it home because Christ guaranteed that you are totally forgiven. The imperfect ones who were dead have been brought to life. By his wounds you were healed, Peter says. Now this verse has led some to falsely believe in the church that, hey, this verse teaches us that you'll never be physically sick anymore. I'm serious. Like, the church services that people have where they have healing services, they claim this verse and say, this verse specifically says that when Jesus died on the cross... By his wounds were healed physically. 
But that's not the context of this verse. The context of this verse isn't physical sickness, it's spiritual sickness. And that what Christ provided through his sacrificial death provides healing for our souls. By Jesus' wounds, or as Isaiah 53, 5 says, his scourging or stripes. But I want you to notice something. The word wounds here in verse 24, you know, we think it's plural, more than one wound. And the actual original language, uh, Greek language that was translated from the Hebrew, it's singular. One wound. Our spiritual healing comes from the one ultimate wound of Christ, his death. It's a reference to everything that he went through that led to the culmination of his death on the cross. By that one wound, we are healed. Now, it's very likely that Peter's readers would have received similar wounds or lashes as household slaves. They would have suffered at the hands of cruel masters. That's the passage that we left a few weeks ago that set up this example. You know, that the, the slaves are to uh, submit to their masters even when they are unreasonable. Well, Christ suffered at the hands of unreasonable men. And he willingly entrusted himself to his father. And when you entrust yourself to your Heavenly Father, you allow Him to use the suffering that is in this life to prepare you for where you're headed. God will use the suffering that you face in this life to make you more like His Son. The crucible of suffering, as some have called it, is really the place where God uses all of the terribleness that affects us and doesn't waste it so that we can become mature in His Son as we entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father and as He makes us more like Jesus, who we are called to follow in His steps. And then in verse 25, we read, For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I love the description that Peter uses here. We were once like the sheep of Isaiah 53 verse 6 that have gone astray. Like we're just wandering in the wilderness. We think as wandering sheep we know better. But then Peter says, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Through his sacrificial death, Jesus has provided access for wayward sheep to return to God. And we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep. Not only is he the good shepherd, but he is also the guardian of of your soul. And so if you're ever tempted to think, even for a second, even in a moment when you're going through suffering and think, oh, Jesus must be too busy to worry about little old me. 
Remember the truth of verse 25. That Jesus is the guardian of your soul. He's watching over you. More than you know. Your soul is protected by the perfect shepherd from all hostile adversaries in the spiritual realm. He will never let any attack befall you that will crush you and tear you away from his presence. And we also learn in verse 25 something really important. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned. See, thankfully, God has waited for us to return. God waited for you to come to your senses and come to him and rest under his authority. As the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And he was patient. He was patient with you in the past. Oh, was he patient. All those moments before you came to Christ. And I have talked to some of you and you can vividly remember those moments where you can say now, I shouldn't be here today. Because of the reckless behavior of my younger life. God is patient with you. He's waiting for you to return. It's like the father of the prodigal son who saw his son leave and sow his wild oats and live with the pigs, but finally come home. You know, when you get to the bottom and you think, I have nowhere else to go. Who do you find waiting for you? The father. I heard of a story about a father and son in Madrid, Spain. They had a big blowout, a big fight. Words were exchanged. Anger went back and forth like that happens sometimes, right? Yeah, we, we know that. Finally, this young teenage son ran away from home. His dad was so brokenhearted that he started looking for him all over town, and he couldn't find him. He called his friends. He went to the normal stops that his son went to. He found nothing. Finally, last, a last desperate hope thought came through his mind, and he took out an ad in the Madrid newspaper that read, Dear Paco, meet me tomorrow in front of the newspaper office at 12 noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Come home. Signed, Dad. The next day at 12 noon in front of the newspaper office in Madrid, Spain, there were 800 young men named Paco. (laughs) They were all wanting to receive forgiveness from their fathers from whom they were estranged. God is wanting us to come home, to return, to rest under his care. And you might be saying, well, I'm in church. I feel like I'm drawing close. But are you home with Jesus? Do you know what that means? To, to be able to rest and to know that you are forgiven, restored. Not that you're trying to show God that you're trying to get your act together by going to church. But that you know and rest in the power and presence of Jesus. And you worship him here at this church. And so if you're not home yet, come home. Come home to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. 
Know that He loves you and has forgiven you and all of your sin was placed on His Son so that all of His righteousness could be placed on you. And let us press on as children of God, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who endured the hostility so that we could find life in Him. And may Jesus be the one who captures our attention. No matter what season of life we go through, in times of joy and in times of blessing, also in times of persecution and in times of suffering, may God be glorified in us as we suffer for Him. Let's pray.